Good morning. Okay. Okay, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Job chapter 1, as well as put your finger in John chapter 21, if you feel like it, Luke chapter 22, Job 38. No, it's fun. Very excited to be here and do this with you this morning. Oh, Jesus. Why don't you just, uh, just pray with me? Father, we just pray for your presence to be here in a powerful way. Father, would you overwhelm and override all all emotions that are not of you. Let your peace rule and reign in our hearts. Bless the time of fellowship we get to have later. Thank you for a food truck. Thank you for opportunities that you've given us. We pray that we would encounter your goodness this morning. And we would find incredible favor and delight in you. We love you and we trust you and we want to love you with our whole heart. In Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. So here we go. We're going to jump right into this. Suffering and pain is only a problem for Christian people. And here's what I mean by that, if you don't believe me. I don't mean that people that don't believe in Jesus don't go through suffering and pain, but it is not the same kind of issue that we feel and we as Christians get overwhelmed with. Because as you walk with non-Christian people, tons of stuff happens to them and they just go, man, we got to get through it. This is the worst. I hate it. I don't like it. But they are not bothered by it the way we are bothered by it as Christians. Because we are bothered by the reality that if there is a loving God and if he is all powerful, why does bad things happen to good people? That's a question that bothers people. Why do bad things happen to people that are trying to do well? And as a Christian, it gets even worse because how can bad things happen to people who entrust themselves to a good, perfect, powerful, loving, heavenly father? That's a hard one. That's one that causes many people to wrestle with it, and people wrestle with it wrongly. They wrestle with it in ways of saying, well, that just, if you believe in Jesus enough and you stay in the center of his will, nothing bad will happen to you. Didn't work for the apostles. Didn't go so well for Jesus either, might I say. Bad things happen to good people, and bad and terrible things can take place in Christians' lives. But it should trouble us. If we haven't thought deeply about it, that might be why we're not necessarily bothered, but it should bother us. Because if God is, unlo- if, if God is loving, perfectly loving, people have wrestled with this for centuries, then why is there evil in the world? It's one of the number one questions People, when we lead them to Christ, they go, okay, I got a question. Oh, really? You too? (laughs) Wonder what it's going to be. How come bad things happen if God's really loving? Oh, right, okay, good, let's talk about that. And I'm not minimizing it. But see how it's only a problem for Christians. 
in the strictest sense. I don't mean it's not an issue. Nobody likes bad things. But they get through it differently. But however, if God's all-powerful, all-powerful, can stop anything, can start anything, why doesn't he stop evil? Why doesn't he stop it? And if you're trusting Jesus, you're entrusting yourself to this God, then how can he let the things that have taken place in your life, how could he have let that happen to you? Do you know, especially when it comes to children and the preciousness of life at that point, pain is pain and it hurts no matter what. And we carry a lot of the pain that we've had and experienced in the past because it's a hard gig to get around. Why it happened? And usually, especially growing up in my world of growing up in the Christian faith, I would literally have an understanding when bad things slammed into me like a Mack truck, I'd go, why me? Fair enough question. I've been walking in this way. I've been doing the things you were doing. I might have lipped off my mom one or, once or twice, but not, not perfect. But why, why this? Why me? How could this happen to me? And we all carry this pain and this residual kind of almost like a limp because bad things have happened. Really gross, horrific things. We could probably spend days on end just with the amount of people in this room and hear story after story after story. And just if we could put it all in a bucket, it would probably fill this whole room just to pain. Stuff that have happened. Stuff that everybody, do you know that song? There's a song that says, everybody's got a story that'll break your heart. And in there, it's the taxi driver has a PhD and all those other things are happening. There's like people, everybody's got a story that'll break your heart. I'll tell you, as, as doing ministry for as long as I've done it, in, or as short as I've done it, depending on how old you are. <laughs> but doing ministry for as long as I've been a part of this, and being a part of this Christian world, I'll tell you, there's not one story I hear that, that's full of pain that doesn't wreck my heart. Like, uh, oh, again? And often it stirs more compassion towards the person. You're like, oh, they went through that and they're still walking? They're still moving? And so there's this, this crazy amount of pain that we have. And so... But bad things happen to good people. And in Job's case, in Job's case, bad things happen even to the best of people. For nobody was more undeserving. If you don't have a context in church, we're going to begin to explain the story of Job. I'll try to bring this, bring it to the forefront of your mind and make it explainable as possible. But Job is a, a righteous man, the Bible says. And apart from Jesus Christ, there's probably no guy in history that ever didn't deserve suffering to come into his life. And yet Job suffered more than probably anybody in history. Job, just to give you a context of his suffering or to give you a context of his piety, is Job would sacrifice and give prayerful worship to God whenever his children had a party. So he did not only just take care of his holiness, his personal holiness, he was concerned for all of his kids. Perhaps they might have done something to offend God, so he would sacrifice on their behalf, and he would take precautions at all points and times. He was a righteous man, and the story of Job is full of the extent of his righteousness. He wouldn't even look at a woman lustfully. 
which is something in our context that most people struggle with to a degree. Both guys and girls struggle with this whole idea of looking lustfully. Well, it's just in my heart and nobody really knows. Job was so pure in that, he made a covenant with his eyes. And a covenant back then was different than our little verbal commitments. It was a big deal. Actually, in the context of Job writing that, covenant with his eyes meant that if he broke that covenant, he probably would have popped his eye out. Sounds a little gross. Welcome to church. But uh, here we go. That'd be great. There's a lot of kids today. This is exciting, especially back there. <laughs> so, but here's, here's where I want to go with this, okay? Many of us are mature enough in our faith and have wrestled with this long enough, and we've even preached towards this direction in our church, especially over the last few years. But we, we understand that God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. And Romans 8, 28, 29, and 30 says that God takes our bad things and makes them good. He takes our good things and he makes it so we can never lose them. And the best things are yet to come. It's the story of the Christian life. But the question I want to look at this morning is what Job was wrestling with, is, is God worth it? Is God worth it? If bad things happen to good people, and if we've got to get through this kind of a stuff, is God worth it? And in Job chapter 1, if we want to look at this together, Job chapter 1, Starting at verse 6. Now, it's a little crazy. If you have no background in church, just hold your breath. You ready? Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came along with them. <laughs> the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth, from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there's none like him on all the earth. A blameless, upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Which later in the book says that is the, that's the beginning of wisdom. Fearing God, turning away from evil. Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? Have you not, have you, you have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions and have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hands. Only do not stretch out your hand. So only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And, 
And in verse 19, it says, And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of his house, and it fell on the young people, his children, fell on the young people, and they were dead. A whirlwind came. And that's important to remember the whirlwind for what I'm about to tell you. So here we go. Satan challenges Job. And says, can, God, can a man, can a woman love God for nothing? For no other reason than God is good and beautiful and holy and amazing. Satan goes, ha, he challenges God's goodness in the presence of all that we're witnessing. And saying, the only reason why humans ever love you is because you give them good things. And if you take it away, you smack them in the face, you hurt them, they will curse you to your face. You are a failure. You are not worth it. And as Satan demonstrated, again, for those that don't have a context in church, Satan was an angel that fell from heaven, was cast from heaven because he wanted himself to be God, the Bible records. And so Satan is challenging who God is, and God goes, oh baby, you watch. You watch. Now here's a neat little side note. Step away from it for a second. It's neat to know that Satan's on a leash. Yeah. See how fun that is? I love that scripture. Don't look at all the negative stuff in it right away. Go, oh my goodness, God's talking to Satan? Doesn't he hate him? Yes, hate. Yes, going to destroy. All that kind of stuff. But he's on a leash. Goes, ah, you can do this, but not this. Come here, boy. <whistles> nice and easy, right? Let's relax. Everybody breathe. Here we go. So Job is the product or a demonstration of something that nobody would want to go through. Nobody would want to go through. And so the story of Job really kind of kicks off with Job sitting in the city dump on top of a manure pile. He has sores all over his body, and the only comfort he can find is taking broken pieces of pottery, broken garbage in this, this area, and he scrapes himself with it. He lost his livestock, camels, oxen, sheep, all of them were destroyed. He lost his farmhands, his servants, they were murdered by bands of robbers. He lost his children, seven sons and three daughters. They were killed in the whirlwind that we read when it came and destroyed his home. His body is covered in sores and boils from the sole of his feet to the crown of his head. And he can find no rest. He can find no rest. And so Job offers his complaint. And then his superstar friends come and they do the one thing that when people are suffering Nobody needs commentary. <laughs> Just again, another side note. When people are in agony and pain, they don't need a commentary. And parents, we don't get this. At least I don't always get this. Because when my children do something they weren't supposed to do and then they're in pain, I want to tell them, I told you not to do it. Why did you do it this way? You should have listened to me. And they're like... <laughs> All they need me to do is pick them up, hold them, love them, and take them to the hospital. <laughs> Don't need a lecture. 
But I mean, I inherited that trait. My mom used to say that to me all the time, but that's a... <laughs> Usually, if I did something I wasn't supposed to do and I was in pain because of it, she'd spank me and then comfort me. <laughs> well, you shouldn't have done it and you're hurt, so now you're going to be doubly hurt. It's my world, but... <laughs> so... Job is, has his friends come in and they ride in on their little high horses, not really, but their proverbial high horses, and they, they want to educate, they, they educate Job, and they want to tell him all these things about the way God is and why he's in pain. They're trying to be helpful, but it's unhelpful because it's wrong. There is no reason for why Job is going through this. So people will say that, that you call it the piety principle, call it the do good and God will be good to you principle, the moralistic principle, the, the Christian school principle. <laughs> we don't have enough people that went to Christian school. That's where my limp comes from, but that's a side note. But they, they all say this, that if you do good, God will be good to you. And they're going, well, Job, you probably did a little sinning. You probably weren't doing well. You probably failed in this way. You probably failed in that way. And it's this whole story of Job's failure. And Job continues to go, uh-uh, uh-uh. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't. Here's what I did. And he's probably the only one in history that probably could say it the way he says it. God's commendation of him is that he was righteous. And so Job goes through this banter and process of, of, of dealing with these guys that are unhelpful. Can you imagine? Like these are long, when you read the story of Job, these are long sermons that these guys, these friends are preaching to a boil-infested guy sitting there scraping himself while he's getting a sermon listen preached out of. Like, I don't need a sermon right now. It's not what I need. How about some cream? Lotion? Get out of here. But he still, still walks him for our benefit. So it's, he walks him through it. Scripture records in the New Testament that all of the Old Testament is written for our instruction, that we wouldn't desire evil, that we'd have understanding as to the ways and workings of God. And that's what we get here. And so, so Ken, the other, the other thing is this. If God is good, if, if we're good, God will be good to us. Job has to reject that. He also doesn't just... He also doesn't embrace just the idea that just bad things happen, that sometimes people bring bad things on themselves. That's fine. Job recognizes that in the scriptures, that sometimes people just make really bad decisions, and then those decisions kind of haunt them or overshadow them, and there's just issues that they have to deal with. But Job, Job starts to reveal, can a person love God for God, for who he is. Can he love him without looking for any tangible reward now? Can God be loved for who he is? And Job reveals that. Do you know that after the first seven days of Job's suffering, you never again hear the specifics of what Job lost? Because the issue isn't the stuff that he's lost or the pain that's on his body. The issue in the story is God. And Job, oh, I'll leave that part in. Hang on. So Job 
is dealing with all of this pain, all of this suffering. I'm going to bring up the scripture. Turn to Job chapter 38, please. Job 38. I will tell you. Here we go. So Job, in dealing with all these kind of things, he's asking, he's begging for an audience with God. And he is saying, God, I have not done wrong, yet wrong has happened to me. And what you need to know before we jump to the rest of this part of the story is that only the readers know what happens behind the scenes. Only the reader knows. Job is never told of what happened with the dialogue with Satan. Job is never told why his children were taken from him, why the livestock was gone, why instantaneously in moments everything was stripped from him. Job is never told why. He is, he gets God. In the story, he comes face to face with God. And he doesn't start with when he sees God face to face. Well, God, look at what's on my body. Look at this pain you've done to me. I was doing this and I was doing this and I was doing this. And yet look at how much I have suffered. Job gets God at the end of the story. And it reveals that God is enough for Job. And so the Bible records this in Job 38. Stay with me. In Job 38, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is it that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. Put on your cup, someone once said. I will question you. And you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Just in one foul swoop, just God separates all the issues and goes, I'm God. And hear this. God speaks to Job from the whirlwind. The very thing that took his kids from him. Do you see this? The very pain that Job would associate with, there was a whirlwind, and that's when everything was destroyed. God brings a whirlwind and speaks to him from that place of pain and goes, Job, I'm enough. And later, if you want to continue reading, God restores to Job double what was taken from him but not until Job is in that place of complete worship, going, you are enough. For Job said, famously, naked, I came into this world, naked, I shall leave. You can't take it with you. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's what he says. He says he fell on his knees and he worshiped. When he heard bad news happen, he fell on his knees and he worshiped. And he said, blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. For he is good all the time. And all the time he is good. And it's a call for us to respond 
in that kind of a way that when bad things happen, there is a difference between bad news and a bad report. Bad news is an opportunity for a miracle, for God to move in and move through. A bad report is saying it will always be like this because there is no hope. We as Christians should never fear bad news. But we should never give cause to a bad report. You can say, I am suffering in this way, but God is my helper. Remember, but God is my healer, but God is my deliverer. Different than a bad report saying, I guess I'm going to be like this for the rest of my life. Guess I just guess I'll have to just suffer through it. No. We will seek and trust the God who loves us. So who else in the Bible experienced something like this? My friend Peter. Want to turn to, please. This is addressing, is God worth it? And when bad things have happened, how does God deal with you in your bad things? Luke chapter 22, please. There we go. Luke chapter 22, verse 31. This has bothered me for 15 plus years. I've been studying it ever since. This is Jesus speaking to Peter, Simon. Remember the name from a sermon I preached a while back. It's on the website. Uh, Simon, the name means shifting sand, kind of wavering, unsteady. And God said, I will make you a rock, right? And remember, at this point, he already said he was going to make Peter a rock. And at this point, he's saying, no, Simon, you're still who you were. I'm going to make you that way, though. I'm going to. Remember, the process of transformation takes longer than just a moment. God says it. It's created. It's happening. It's in motion. But often, the process of transformation takes the nitty-gritty times of God moving in and through you while you are on the road of discipleship, while you're on the road with Christ. He says this, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. Okay, very similar to the story we read about Job, right? Satan's there going, hey, I'll take him. Same thing happening to Peter, okay? Not nearly as extreme, my opinion, but you know what always bothered me is Jesus' response. So he says, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, and sifting like wheat is not a fun process. I know we don't have an agricultural background, but that usually involves beating something, threshing, right? Sifting (laughs) to get the wheat out of the husks. Jesus says, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Prayed? Like as a kid, when I was reading this, I would go, why didn't you just boot him in the face when Satan demanded? Why didn't Jesus go, ha, I'm Jesus. (laughs) You can't ask me anything. No, he goes, but I prayed for you. I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Because the thing through the story of Job was that Job's faith did not fail. And remember, trials, testings, temptation, 
It's all the same word in the Bible. And testings of God are meant to prove and improve your character. Temptations, when Satan is behind it, is meant to get you off the path, remove you completely, disqualify you, and get rid of you. But God will use the temptations to prove his testings for us. Because even in the temptations, the Bible says, God always gives us a way out. So that it can be a test that proves. Does God tempt us? No. The Bible says in James, no, we can't tempt anybody. He tests us. And so hear this. It says, I pray for you that your faith may not fail. Then Jesus, with all compassion, said, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. This was going to be a part of Peter's rock transformation process, where he was going to be one that was going to be able to give strength. He wouldn't be like the shifting sand that was in his DNA, his character and his nature, his new nature that God was producing in him. That good work that he started in Peter was going to be finished, but it was, this was a part of it. And it says, Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you to both prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you have denied me three times. That you've denied that you, three times that you know me. And so the story of Peter's denial, if you just look over into verse 55, 54 and 55. We're not going to read it for the sake of time. But the story is one of, is by firelight. The Bible records in detail, which is, proves it's a historical document. Random details show that something is historical. It's kindled by a fire. Okay? Sorry, they kindle a fire. It's right in the story. And so Peter goes in there to warm himself by said fire. And he gets challenged by a young girl, maybe 13 years old, who goes, hey, aren't you one of those guys that walked with Jesus who is on trial right now, who is being persecuted right now? And Peter, out of fear, goes, oh, I don't know the man. And two more times that happens around a fire. Two more times that happens around a fire. And it says that Peter denied Jesus three times, then the rooster crowed, and Jesus looked at Peter, and Peter ran and wept bitterly. This is part of the sifting. Then we find in the story, for the sake of time, I could take you through all the scriptures, but for the sake of time, we'll move on. Peter goes, sees that Jesus is crucified, sees that Jesus is buried, and tells his fishing friends, I'm going back to do what I used to do. I'm going fishing. And we pick the story back up in John chapter 21, one of my most favorite chapters in all of the Bible. If you're allowed to have favorites. And a familiar scene takes place. A familiar scene of Jesus standing on the shore and they don't know it's him. And he calls out to them, for they had been fishing all night. He goes, hey, guys. My paraphrase, it's not, doesn't talk like that. Hey, guys. 
why don't you try casting the net on the other side? And they're like, okay. <laughs> Don't know if they talk like that either, but that's the way it seems. And so they cast the net on the other side. All of a sudden, a big amount of fish come. Like, it wasn't that Jesus calling out to them saying, cast the net on the other side. They didn't recognize him there. It's when the miracle of fish started coming. They're like, hey, wait a minute. This happened before. And then John goes, it's Jesus. And Peter goes, ah, and he puts on his clothes. However that worked, but this is part of the story. He puts on his clothes again and throws himself, hurls himself into the water and swims towards Jesus. Swims towards the one he had just rejected and betrayed. And what does Jesus welcome him into? He welcomes him into breakfast by a fire. Peter denied Jesus around a fire. And Jesus kindles a fire and welcomes Peter into his very life, into his love. What a what a fire represent to Peter at this point? Every bit of his failure. I can imagine Peter, and I'm not speaking from the silence of Scripture, but I can imagine Peter swimming, and as he gets up, he goes, oh, dang, there's a fire. Like, I don't know if he's getting emotional. <laughs> That's just what I did. It's like almost like a flashback. He goes, I hate this scene. This is the worst part of my story. Jesus goes, I'm in the worst part of your story. And he welcomes Peter to come. And the disciples come in after. And then after breakfast as they are around, the famous interchange between Peter and Jesus takes place. And Jesus goes to Peter and says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter goes, you know I do, Lord. Yes, I love you. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. Do you love me, Peter? He says, yes, Lord, I love you. Feed my sheep. Do you love me, Peter? He goes, you know I do, Lord. He says, feed my lambs. Now hear this as we close. Feed my lambs. Peter is not told, we are not told what was taking place in the heavenlies during Peter's sifting. Nobody knows the extent of how much Satan was involved in order to inflict suffering on Peter. And Peter is not told. He is not, Jesus doesn't explain it to him. Jesus doesn't say, well, Peter, here's what was happening, and he did a pretty good job, but then he kind of failed at this one little point there, but it's okay, I'm right with you, you're not so bad. He doesn't, and Peter doesn't come to him and go, Lord, Lord, I, I know I said that I denied you, but I didn't really mean it. None of that. He's face to face with the creator of the universe, face to face with his best friend, face to face with the lover of his soul, and he goes, He's in an interchange, 
And Jesus replaces the amount of times that he denies Peter, that denies Jesus. He replaces that and welcomes Peter into love. The same amount of times at the same kind of fire. The very situation that Peter found himself in, in sinning and denying and breaking trust and destroying Peter would have felt disqualified at this point. Peter would have felt frustrated beyond anything. Like he just has to go back to fishing because he has nowhere else to go. And yet Jesus comes in the midst of that pain and he welcomes Peter into his love. And from that place of pain commissions him into his destiny. From that place of pain says, you denied me with your words, but I'm going to call you to feed people with your words. I'm going to call you to lead many to know me through your words. The very thing that disqualified Peter, he brings out of Peter. The very thing that caused Peter to sin greatest, he raises Peter up to be a rock, to be one that stands in the knowledge and revelation of who God is, stand in the fullness of his love and declare the riches of the kingdom of God to nations and to be the one that opens the door through the power of the Holy Spirit so the gospel could go to the whole world. Peter. And so like Job, who had a whirlwind take away that which was precious to him, and yet God comes and ministers to him through a whirlwind. Peter has a fire of denial and then gets introduced to God's fire of incredible love. If you look at the book of Revelation, if you look at the book of Revelation, People praise God for his judgments, praise him for all that he has done in the world as they see. Because in judgment, remember, we've talked about this before, in judgment, it means clarity. It means that that there's going to be an understanding of things to a degree. But I've had to bring that into check to a bit because I I think I was interpreting my own heart to want to know why certain things worked out the way that they did. In my own life and in the lives of of this church, people that I've walked with and bled with and going, why this kind of pain? Why this kind of stuff? The amount of suffering that people have gone through, I was hoping for an explanation in the end. Because in the word judgment, it has that kind of understanding. There'll be clarity. But I have to submit to you that I believe the clarity is the beauty and riches of God. I don't know if we're going to get an explanation for every little detail of our life. But we're going to look face to face with the one that has his arms stretched wide. That still to this day will hold for eternity the marks of pain and suffering of the crucifixion on his flesh. Proving for eternity the love that he has for us. That none of us are going to walk and see him face to face and go, yeah, but this life was so hard, but I suffered so much. All of us that have this gift of grace are going to fall to our feet and worship him and say, oh, you are enough. You are that good. You are that glorious. You are that beautiful. I love you. Oh, I want to love you with all I am. 
and it will wash and strip away every pain, every detail, every frustration, every disappointment and delay you've ever had because the Bible proves true that God is enough for everyone in here and God is enough for me and for you. He is enough. And I don't mean just enough. I mean he's overwhelming like a waterfall. Enough. You won't be able to hold on to anything in the waterfall of his presence. You won't be able to hold on to one thing. Because you will see how glorious and amazing and precious he is. And probably show us how he was there. And so what I want to invite you to do this morning is understand that Jesus is not afraid of your failures. In fact, it's your very failures I want to challenge you with. It's your very failures that Jesus will probably call you to go into that place. And he will Recreate it and transform it. The very thing you might be most afraid of. And he might transform that and out of that unleash you and unlock you in your calling. But as our, as our pastor leads us in the Lord's table this morning, and as we're within the time frame of this church, didn't preach over long, I want us to be able to let go. That as you take hold of bread this morning, let go now of the, of the look at this pain that's happened to me. Look at my suffering. How could, I, how could God really be good in this situation? And free yourself from it by letting go and taking hold of what God has done for us. Because the Bible says he was broken for us. Us. His blood was shed to cover, the forgive, cover us with forgiveness from all of our sin, both past, present, and future sin. Oh, how glorious he is, and that we would be unlocked in freedom. As you rise from your seat this morning to take part in the Lord's table, and as you go later to then fellowship with other people, to connect with people out of the love that God has placed in your heart, that we would do it freely, knowing Full well that God is in the middle of what we are going through. He's in the middle of the whirlwind and he's speaking to us from that place of pain. He is by the fire where we have denied and betrayed him. And he is welcoming us into his love because the gospel is about what he has done for us and about his fulfillment of the covenant in our place. The covenant of his love and his supreme grace. And he is all about restoration, transformation, deliverance, healing, and salvation. All of it is for us to participate in in fullness. And so my prayer for us this morning, us all this morning, is to understand with a deeper resolve and a deeper confidence, not just holding on to one day God will explain this to me, but running after him in all of his beauty, knowing in that, that will be enough of an explanation. If he wants to explain something to you, he will. He's very good at it. 
But what if he's not asking you to ask why right now? What if he, like a perfect heavenly father, is reaching out his hand and saying, trust me. But daddy, I don't want it. It just hurts. Trust me. Come. Let's go. I have all of this in store for you. But I just want to know why. I have all of this in store for you. Trust me. Come into my life. Because once you understand that, you can bleed alongside of other people and say, not like Job's friends. Well, you've probably done this wrong and this wrong and this wrong. But rather like Job's friends should have been. With, come on, let's go plead to God together. Because look what he's done for me. And he will do it for you. He's enough. He's enough. And to know this in your heart, that there very well may be bigger things going on around in your life than any of us could ever imagine. And yet God still calls you to faithfulness. He doesn't give you a blank check to sin when you feel like you're tired. Well, I've really struggled and I've, I've fought this fight for 22 years. Now it's time for me time. No. Now it's time to up the trust. And welcome others into his glorious grace. God's empowering presence.